Welcome to Myth versus Craft. My guest today is the incredibly talented Mark Lettieri. To many, he is best known as one of the guitarists in the supergroup Snarky Puppy. You may not know that Mark is also a highly sought-after session guitarist and accomplished sideman and prolific solo artist. He's recorded for artists as varied as David Crosby, Snoop Dogg, Lupe Fiasco, and Adam Levine, and has performed with Erica Badu, Nelly, and Philip Phillips, amongst many others. Prior to speaking with Mark, I knew that he was a gifted and versatile guitarist, and I now know that he's also thoughtful, humble, and just a really nice guy. You're about to listen to snippets from songs from his albums Spark and Echo and Deep, the Baritone Sessions, as well as a song from the album Guitar Band from fellow snarky puppy Bob Reynolds. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. It's uh, it's a pleasure, and I appreciate your flexibility. I know yeah, we tried right on, a, a few different dates. Yeah, well, here we are. Thanks for thanks for asking me to do this. I read that you started playing guitar at about eleven or twelve years of age. Uh huh. And um, and I've talked to guests who started at like four. I think Josh Smith told me that he you know they gave him a guitar when he was four years old, and and there's been a pretty wide range. Yeah. But something that I'm really um, intrigued by is the interplay between natural talent and hard work. And, uh, and I'm wondering, I mean, you've clearly worked very hard and you seem like a humble guy, but would you say that playing guitar came easily to you? Um, I, th- yes, 
you know, and just just not to say that with any sort of haha, look at me. But uh, but yeah, I think so. You know, and I think a, but a part of it was I had great teachers and I also had peers who I was playing with where we were really pushing each other, you know, so. So I found some kind of like-minded individuals where we would jam together and play together and just sort of everyone kind of um, would excel together, but also sort of at their own pace, you know. Um, but I guess maybe uh, compared to like other players that I saw in town, you know, where I grew up, I, I was probably a little bit ahead. And I also read that you were you, you described yourself as always being a band guy. So you, you you've always been in bands. Yeah. Uh, what kind of music did you play in your high school bands? Well, we started out. The first band I ever really put together was a little band with myself and a guitar player friend and a drummer friend. We didn't actually have a bassist for a little while, and we played all kinds of stuff. It was all rock music. I mean, every every classic rock cover we could learn, you know, plus some kind of current stuff. So this was like the mid nineties. And so, I mean, it, we would jam on everything from Hendrix to sublime, for example, you know, we just, we had, you know, we just liked anything that was guitar and rock oriented. And, and as we got better, we tried our hand at more technical stuff like Metallica songs. And, you know, uh, we, we tried a couple, um, Oh gosh, I don't. I mean, we. I think we had a Joe Satriani song in our set, oh, but wow. then we would also play. Yeah, but then we would also play. Um, this was now. I'm talking about kind of getting into high school. Now, now we have a bass player, and we were playing like backyard parties, and so we we would play like the current rock music. So it was like you know Third Eye Blind and Matchbox Twenty, and so and we weren't necessarily into those bands, but we knew that we were thinking business mindedly we we're like well we're gonna have to play a couple things that the girls are gonna want to dance to you know right uh and so we had a couple of those in the set and everything and and then kind of towards the end of high school everyone's taste changed a little bit and we were starting to get more into funk and jazz oriented stuff and so the herbie hancock tunes came in and the john schofield little jams that we would try to pick up on kind of influenced our sound a little bit i started getting really into steely dan around you know 16 17 and so so our sound kind of changed. We got a saxophonist, you know, uh, and at the same time, I was playing in band with with my church uh, on on Wednesday nights. They did kind of like this community youth event that which was essentially just like a a big hang. You know, it was like kind of like a it was sort of like Saturday Night Live. <laughs> OK, so people would come and hang out and there would be a live band and there were skits and comedy. Oh, nice. and people, and We play <laughs> games and eat food. And it was just like a big a big community hang, but it had a, it had a spiritual element to it, but the music was all secular. We didn't play like worship songs. The the band played everything from Bob Marley to Santana to, you know, Metallica. I remember at one point our past, <laughs> our pastor sang enter Sandman. <laughs> and so being in that band was really cool because I was having to learn all these tunes every week. Um, and a lot, and a lot of stuff, it wasn't stuff that I was super familiar with because I was one of the younger guys in the band and the older guys were, were really into R and B and blues and, and soul. And so I was learning James Brown songs and, and, uh, Bob Marley, like I said, and all these things, you know, that I wasn't totally listening to a whole bunch at home because I was really into just like heavy guitar rock, you know? Um, so that was a nice, a nice bit of education for me, but yeah, I've always been in a band. I've always had some kind of a original band project. Sometimes I've been the leader. Sometimes I've been a member, you know, it hasn't all just been freelance hired gun stuff. So, right. I, um, 
I remember reading an article with, um, gosh, I'm, I'm going to butcher his last name. I, f- I forget what it is, but Pink's uh, touring guitar player, Justin Derrico. Derrico. Oh, yeah. Oh, he's really good. <laughs> oh, he's amazing. But yeah. it was it was an article where he was talking about, I believe, and I think it was him. He he had been playing in the house band for The Voice or one of the, the yeah. competition shows. Right. He did that for a while. Yeah. And it was basically just a breakdown of how the house band learned, I don't know, 40 new songs every single week yep. and and nailed them, right? And and how hard that was. So it sounds like you had your taste of, of that. Well, on um, a much smaller <laughs> scale. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it was, you know, and it wasn't like there wasn't sheet music or anything. It was the, the band was cool. It was, it was the run by uh, a guy that was on staff at the church and then another student who was, who was older and they would just kind of pick the tunes and, you know, this was, I mean, there was email at this time, but it it wasn't, it was just kind of like come by the church. There's a CD that we burned of the songs, you know, and then I would just <laughs> right. learn them by ear or get on the internet and try and find tablature or something. But, you know, there wasn't like sheet music or whatever. Right. I think most of it I just learned by ear or if there was something real specific I, I, that I couldn't nail, I would have, I would ask my guitar teacher, my at the time that was coming to my house to like help me out with it, you know. I read that it was in high school that you first began to think, hey, maybe I might want to do this for a living. Uh, yet you went on to study advertising and public relations at TCU. Yeah. Um, I also read that you competed in track and field. Right. Yep. How did you manage to prioritize your classwork, track and field and playing music? I worked really, really hard growing up. You know, I grew up in the Bay Area and there's a lot of, you know, I, I, I don't want to use the word pressure in the sense that like people's parents are crazy or helicoptering or whatever it is. But, but in the community that I grew up there, it was, you know, it was, it was expected that you did extracurricular activities. You tried to do AP classes, you did sports, you did activities, you tried, you know, you tried to get a good college acceptance resume going. And and that's what you did. That's just kind of where I, what I came from. And so all of my peers were just, we just, everyone did a million things. You know, they were in school clubs, they were in sports, they had their friends, they did, you know, classes. It was all, it was, you just, we were just juggling a lot of things and it wasn't, I, nobody ever felt like it wasn't natural or that, you know, and I, I, I would never say that my parents forced me to do anything. They just saw that I had a lot of interests and I had a lot of passions. And so I just went for everything that I liked to do. You know, uh, the, the, the music thing was kind of more my own thing that I discovered the track and field thing kind of came from my dad because he was a runner growing up and he actually still competes in, in masters track and field. Oh, wow. And so he kind of suggested that I get into, and I, you know, I showed a, a, I was fast. I I was good at sports. And so track and soccer, I was in soccer a lot. Um, but track and field kind of became this, this thing that I found out I really liked alongside guitar. And so it was sort of this weird thing where I just had these two passions that both took up a lot of my time. And I was also still, you know, pursuing AP classes and all these kinds of things. And, you know, I probably cared more about the music and men maybe track possibly more than school but i yeah. <laughs> i mean something's got to give right so you know i i mean i if i could get a solid b plus i was happy but to get an a meant that i had to do less of track or music and i wasn't really into that so right um but you know it's funny i the, the track and field thing is kind of what brought me to texas um i walked on at the track team at tcu 
And, you know, of course, I never had any dreams of becoming a professional track athlete, nor was I ever good enough to do that. But I was good enough to be on the team and compete and have fun. And then when I got when I was in Texas kind of finishing up college, I was like, wow, you know, I didn't come here for music, but I think I'm going to stay because of music, uh, because this whole other passion of mine of playing guitar had sort of manifested itself into something that could be a career at that point. What had kept you from picking music as your major or bypassing college altogether and jumping straight into music? I just I don't think I looked at it as a as a profession at that point. I, it was like it was really just a deep, deep passion that I knew I wanted to follow and, and, and pursue just on a personal level. But the mechanics of how to make it a career just weren't clear to me, I don't think. And, and of course, there was that sort of thing about like, you know, if I get a music degree, what am I going to do? You know, people tell you, what are you going to do with a music degree? Like, and, and maybe that was just kind of in my head a little bit. And my mom and dad uh, come from advertising and public relations. And so that was something that interested me. You know, I didn't dislike it. I actually was kind of excited about doing it and, and actually really enjoyed my studies there. And I think a lot of the stuff that I learned and I'm using now, I just kind of like did it because I was like, well, this is cool. I could I could see myself doing this. You know, this I was 17. Nobody can actually make a decision when you're 17. I went to college as a 17 year old, you know, and so I'm thinking like, yeah, I'll, I'll study advertising. I'll get this degree. I'll get a good job. I'll play guitar on the weekends. And if something happens, then I'll quit my job and do that. But I didn't really you know, that was what was in my head, because like, you know, when you're I've said this before in interviews, but like when you're 13 and you're jamming in a garage with your friends, you don't think about like, I'm going to be a session player. I'm going to be a, you know, I'm going to write music for film. I mean, maybe some kids do. I guess the people that are doing that is what they do. But me and my buddies were like, man, I hope our band gets signed so we can tour with Guns N' Roses. You know, it's like we didn't know. We were just suburban dudes in a garage, like jamming with our solid state PVs. Like we didn't give a shit. Like <laughs> I had one. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, you know, that the idea of like doing what I do now, I was just like a pipe dream. And, and I think maybe it's cool that there's more information now for younger musicians to kind of get their path together earlier if they want. But like, man, I really kind of feel like I was a bit of a late bloomer in a lot of this. <laughs> At what point was it clear to you that you were not going to find a nine to five job in advertising? Oh, yeah. I remember very clearly. It was the end of my senior year. And w kind of what had been going on was all of my classmates had been going on all these interviews for jobs. A lot of them were out of state. And I kind of couldn't do that because I was so busy with track. Like we practiced every day and on the weekends we would go to meets. So like I didn't have, I couldn't just go to an interview at 2 PM on a Tuesday. And so I just sort of, I just, I left, I got left out. I didn't have a gig. <laughs> and so I waited till the last minute to start applying for jobs with some ad agencies in, in Dallas and Fort Worth. And, and they were all just like, look, dude, you're great, but we hired everybody already. You know, it's like we kind of, you know, half the people we hired have already been doing internships with us, you know, and and uh, I had had an internship at a PR firm in San Francisco one summer, the summer between my junior and senior year. And uh, they it was a great company. I just didn't want to do it. You know, I was sitting at my desk in my khakis, like thinking about being in jeans and playing rock and roll like there's that simple, you know, and, and so this was this was probably 
20, 21 years old now, 20, I think. And, uh, and I was just like, man, I, I gotta re we gotta figure this out. You know, this is, I'm not supposed to be here. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> I remember I left early one Friday to go see Van Halen. Like I didn't, <laughs> I didn't care, you know, I, you know, I would, I, I, I was, I, yeah, I had to get out of there. It was, just wasn't for me. And like I said, they were great people. The companies does great work. I, I, one of my clients was visa. Like it was really interesting. You know, it was interesting to a point, but at, after that I was like, I'm not supposed to be here. And so, you know, by that time, you know, when you're 20, 21, Getting, I think I graduated. Yeah, I graduated college at 21. And, you know, now I see on Instagram, there are guitar players who are 19 with world touring gigs. And you're just like, yeah, I'm, I was way behind. <laughs> you know, it's like, I didn't even know I was going to be doing this for a living. And uh, so things are very, very different, you know, now, I think, for, for younger players. I think, I think it's great. While at TCU, I understand you took a few semesters of jazz guitar as electives. Correct. And uh, reading and watching interviews with you and for sure listening to you play, it's clear that you have a solid understanding of music theory. Uh, did you learn it? Did you pick it up all in that in the jazz guitar classes or did you continue studying it some other way? Yeah, I, I had my teacher in high school who was a local guitar teacher that, you know, serviced a lot of the Bay Area. Of, he would come to your house, you know, just like any teacher you'd study with. Um, he was a great theory teacher. And so we actually got into that. And I was had I was really excited about that because a lot of the guitar players in, in my neighborhood were more into like punk rock and ska and stuff. That's fine. But just it, I needed more in my brain, you know, and so he so we were learning theory together, which was really exciting for me. And so I had a good knowledge of that going into college. And then the jazz guitar thing was kind of just like, well, I'm not pursuing guitar as a major, but it would be cool to get some education out of it while I'm here. So as part of my coursework in advertising, and I think in any major actually at TCU, you had to have some sort of elective credit. And so some people take French or cooking or whatever it is. And I, I took jazz guitar. And so, and this teacher was just a fantastic teacher. And so, yeah, we studied theory. We studied a lot of harmony stuff and a lot of like compositional, excuse me, compositional ideas. I, I didn't go in it thinking like, teach me how to be West Montgomery. Like I wasn't interested in really even like, learning jazz standards. And now a days, now I'm thinking like, shoot, I probably should have taken advantage of that. But I was just like, look, man, let's talk about, tell me how, give me jazz as, as it applies to what I want to do. And he had an idea of how to do that. And so that's what we did. But then, you know, there's so much I've learned just from playing with friends and, and older mentors now that I pick up on. I have a friend that I see, uh, we have, we share a gig together. Um, at a television station and he's just like the biggest theory dork I've ever met in my life. Like to the point where I'm just like, man, I don't care, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I've definitely picked up a lot from him, you know, and, 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 uh, and what he's, what he's shared me. So it's kind of nice to have s options where I can still learn and, and kind of have people hold me accountable for things. I remember after my first semester of, of college, I went home and I ran into a friend. We both played in, in different high school bands at the time, but we took very different paths. He went on to Berkeley, the College of Music. Sure. And after that first semester, we went back and, and he was telling me about everything he had learned. And I remember asking him, um, you know, hey, you know, is, is learning so much music theory going to box you in or make you less creative? And in hindsight, I... I realized that I probably asked that because I was a little jealous or I, I'm embarrassed that I even asked, but I've, I've held on to a kernel of that uh, skepticism about, about musical sophistication. And what I mean by that is, 
is it possible for musical sophistication or a sophisticated understanding of music theory to end up making one overthink one's playing, overthink one's songwriting, or make it just harder to enjoy playing simpler music, finding a groove and, and just playing something simpler. Uh, what has been your experience? Man, I, I've definitely heard, I've definitely heard that and thought and thought about that too. And I, th I don't think it comes down to music theory itself. I think it comes down to the person's personality. I think theory is just a tool. It's, I mean, it's, it's necessary for certain kinds of things, but it's obviously not, you know, a guarantee for anything. I mean, obviously there are plenty of brilliant, brilliant artists who don't even know what key they're in half the time, you know, <laughs> but they just express themselves in a, in such an amazing way that it makes beautiful music. I find that people who maybe struggle in the sense that you're describing where they have so much theory that they overanalyze anything, they would do that even if they weren't musicians. I, I think those are just those kinds of people. They're very analytical. They need everything all, you know, everything has to be to the letter and, and that's how they formulize their, their stuff. So I don't know if I wouldn't say that theory is, is like to blame. I mean, I, you know, I'll just use snarky puppy as, as an example. I mean, everyone in that band has a really good knowledge of music theory, but they all love playing all kinds of music. They will sit on a one chord funk vamp for 20 minutes if it feels good. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, they don't need a hundred and I'm the same way, you know, I don't need a hundred changes or really deep harmony. I think that that has its place. And if you use it appropriately, it's great. But uh, I, I think that being sort of disabled by your knowledge, I think that's, that's a personal problem. <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I hear you. Yeah. I hear you. And, and that, that really resonates. And speaking of snarky puppy, I, uh, a few months ago I watched, um, it was a video of, of a live recording of the Bob Reynolds, uh, guitar band. Yeah. And, and you played in it and, mm -hmm. and you played a, you know, it was a bunch of different songs. And the one I kept on going back to was can't wait for perfect. Sure. Uh, because it's, it's, it's such a great groove. It's a super simple chord progression. Um, but it, I found it just locked me in. I got into it. And in my opinion, it was the perfect platform to then, you know, to, to grab the audience and then build on top of it and, and, and play outside and add color and add shades and, and come back to it. But it was just, it was beautiful. And I think it's a great example of what you just described. You know, everyone playing there knows their stuff and, and could have done, you know, th things that were 20 times more sophisticated, but they were just so, they excelled at playing that groove and using that, uh, maybe that knowledge uh, of, of what is beyond the simple, the simplicity of the basic groove to add that color. And, I, and to me, that's a perfect combo. Thanks, man. Yeah. I mean, that was really fun. It was a really fun session. And yeah, it's a really, yeah, like you said, it's a simple song, but it, it feels great. And it, and it allows the musicians who are interpreting it to really kind of, you know, you can push it, you can push it far, but, but at the same time, since the composition is relatively simple, you can't take it too far. Otherwise the composition loses its integrity. Right. And, and I think that's, what's great about Bob's writing is that he, you know, Bob knows more theory than me times a hundred, you know, but he, he also just knows the power of a great melody and a great groove. And I think that's really what it comes down to. That's, and that's why music is so hard <laughs> because we're all trying to find that happy medium of like, sounds great, feels great, gets the point across and people dig it, you know? And right. sometimes people feel like they need 4 million notes to do that. And other people only need four. And there's kind of no like right or wrong way to do it. You know, I mean like listen to Frank Zappa, for example, like that's incredibly complex bananas, hard music 
but it's still so fun to listen to. He figured it out. You know, the same goes for someone that, you know, a, a, a D'Angelo groove that has four chords. There's not a whole lot going on, but man, does it feel great. It's fun to listen to. And so you just have to find that balance. And, and, and I don't ever really think, I think for me as a writer now, I'm always, I'm actually trying to take stuff out. I'm trying to find, I'm trying to kind of simplify things if I can really get to the core of what the song is, is trying to say and not have to dress it up so much with, with the frosting and the sprinkles. <laughs> what is that quote? Um, uh, simplicity is the ultimate form of sophistication. Sure. That sounds good. I agree with that. <laughs> I don't know who said that, but yeah. I, uh, on another um, topic, uh, you and I haven't met, we don't know each other, but it's clear that you're an affable person. You seem like a really nice guy. I'm okay. <laughs> I've spoken to a, a couple other guests about it. And in a professional context, have you found any situations in which being friendly and nice did not work to your advantage? Uh, well, I guess you, maybe, you know, in a sense that, you know, there are people that will in this business that unfortunately will take advantage of your naivety sometimes. And that's happened to me and, and, and people I know, and it doesn't affect the way I treat people. You know what I mean? That's a hard question to answer. Actually. It, it definitely hasn't been a detriment. That's for sure. I mean, like the more fun, nice people you meet in this business, the better the business is. But you know, at, at a certain point you have to at least internally like, have your guard up and just kind of understand how to navigate certain social or business situations so that you don't get taken advantage of. I spoke to Philip Sace about it. He, and, and he had a, a great quote, I think, to answer that, which was that, and he's the nicest guy, but he said this, he said that sometimes in that industry, and I'm sure in many industries, sometimes people mistake kindness for weakness. Interesting. And that's what he had to watch out for. And over time, learn to be more careful sure. uh, with. I don't, yeah. I mean, I, I, that makes a lot of sense. I, I don't know if I've ever experienced, I think maybe what I, I would take what he said and say, maybe people view kindness as naivety. Like they don't, you know what I'm saying? And I think- Don't know anybody. Right. And I think a lot of times maybe people- early on in my career when I was young and just, Oh yeah, sure. I'll do it. Okay, cool. Great. You know, and not really thinking about what I had just signed up for, you know, and then all of a sudden I'm not getting paid or whatever it is. And, 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 uh, and yeah, that was, that was probably, they probably were like, Oh, this kid doesn't care. He just wants to, you know, <laughs> he just wants to be a part of the team. I want to come back to that. That is a theme that, that interests me, but um, I wanted to ask about something else. I, I get the sense that you are also very detail oriented. Specifically, I, I watched a video that you recorded with TC Electronics, uh -huh. and in it, um, you were showing, I think, your five favorite chord progressions. Right. And one of them was was Purple Rain. <laughs> oh yeah. Right. But the thing is, you recorded a follow up video after the fact in which you corrected some of the chord voicings, and we're like, oh no, no, no I didn't do that quite right. right. Here's how how you really yeah. do it. And I interpreted that to mean, uh, I interpret it as an indicator of your attention to detail and possibly a hint of perfectionism. And uh, that said, you're super prolific, right? So you get stuff done. So I figured that you've managed to find the, uh, a good balance between having high standards, but not letting that slow you down or paralyze you. Do you feel like you found the right balance in that respect? I'm still working it out. I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm a, well, shoot, I'm definitely detail oriented. Yeah. And I posted that sort of correction video more as a respect to Prince because I'm such a fan. I should have known better. 
<laughs> and uh, and I just was waiting for some YouTube comment to be like, oh, wrong, you know. Um, <laughs> I sure that probably some of those other things were wrong. So, you know, that, that video was really fun to do, but it was also kind of like we were shooting. Gosh, we probably shot 20 videos or something over the course of the time that I was there. So I was just like, uh, yeah, I kind of remember how this song goes. Let's do this one, you know. Um, so that was just more of like integrity trying to get that together. Uh, but I, I always here's a good quote since we're talking about quotes from people. Uh, the engineer that I work with a, a lot on my solo records probably gets the brunt of me wanting to be perfect more than anybody. You know, because I'm always like, oh, let's do that again. Or, oh, you know, is there a way I can punch in that one note or whatever? And he goes, dude, if you're trying to be perfect, it's going to end up being perfectly boring. <laughs> and that always has that's has really the first I was just like, oh, you're you know, you don't know. But now it really, man, it makes so much sense because if you edit everything to death, it doesn't sound good. Obviously, there's caveats to this as far as like, well, is it sloppy and crappy and out of tune? Well, that's one thing. But if it's just if it's not, you know, completely metronomically this or completely right on the grid or completely in tune or whatever it is, if it's not computerized, that's a good thing. And, and I'm learning to be okay with that now at this point in my life. <laughs> so would you say that when you're, when you're working on your own music, do you move at the same speed faster or slower than when you're working on sessions for other artists? Uh, oh, I work much slower on my own stuff. And that makes sense to me uh, because I figure you, you can afford to take more time on it. I talked to Josh Smith, pardon me, Josh Smith, who also does a lot of session yeah. work. And he said he works even faster on his own stuff, hmm. which, which I found unusual. Well, I should say, you know what, I, you know, I take that back. I think I, the, the pro, see for me, it's like when I'm writing and stuff like that, like that could take forever, you know, for me to get a song just the way I want it. But when I go to record it, I try, yeah, I could see where he's saying it. I try to be kind of quick because a lot of times the first, your first instinct for something is maybe the best instinct. And when you're doing sessions for someone, you don't, really have the luxury of like taking your time on stuff because usually someone else is paying for it. So, you know, you have to get in there and come up with something cool pretty quick and then you're done. And I think in a sense, if you kind of bring that into your own stuff, it can be good too, because then you kind of get that spontaneity of the moment, which can bring out some really beautiful stuff rather than maybe necessarily like beating a take into the ground until it's perfect. Like we're, <laughs> we're talking about, um, but it varies. I, I just did a record, just finished a record. It's coming out in a couple weeks, or actually, well, about a month. And I work pretty fast, kind of on, kind of on purpose, you know. A new solo, yeah, record? A new solo record, yeah. It's oh wow, it's been only what six six months since the baritone sessions. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm prolific this year, I guess. I don't know what's going on. Oh but, wow, nice. Yeah, so actually, that was interesting. I recorded the baritone record last October, and then did this next record called Things of That Nature. I recorded it back in November. And uh, how is this new album different from uh, or, or the same? Well, it's completely it's completely different from the baritone record. I would say it's it's more along the lines of of my usual solo material, where it's more me melody based and the and the compositions are a little bit more uh, long form. You know, the baritone thing was written to be digested like a can of coke you know what i mean you, you just it's short and fast and you're done and you feel really great and then and then maybe you know you come back and listen to it again uh the these other records are, are like a, you know a glass of wine or something like that where you, you kind of have to <laughs> sip on them a little bit um 
but I'm really excited about it. But yeah, I, I, you know, we did the rhythm tracking in like three days and then did like the guitars, all you know, whatever guitar overdubs you needed to do in maybe two days and then did like a evening with a keyboard player. And then I actually emailed a few parts out to some guys, the rest of the guys to, to finish it up. So so it did happen pretty fast. And you know what? That's just how people make records these days. I don't think, you know, no one has a budget to sit in a studio for four months. I don't. I barely had the budget to sit there for four days. You know what I'm saying? So I see what Josh is saying when he's trying, you know, he wants to get in and get out and capture that kind of magic and live with it. <laughs> for sure. No, I, I look forward to uh, to the new record. I'll keep an eye out yeah, for I'll it. Yeah, I'll send you a link. On another subject, um, going back to what you mentioned earlier about uh, how maybe when you were younger, you said yes to some things that in hindsight you probably shouldn't have taken. Another quote, this one from Steve Jobs, people think focus means saying yes to the things that you've got to focus on, but that's not what it means at all. It means saying no to the hundred other good ideas that there are. And I contrast this with advice that I've heard from many musicians, which is to take every gig you can, never say no, just say yes to everything. And on a, on a related note, I read in an interview with you that you said that one drawback of your profession is that paid vacations are just not part of the job. <laughs> no. <laughs> so at, th at this stage in your career and, and having a family, have you found the right balance to prioritize business opportunities, identify which ones are the right fit, saying no and balancing or fitting in life outside of work? It's getting clearer. And I think that's just something be that's been able to happen because I've been doing this now for a while. Because at the beginning, when I was right out of college, I totally said yes to everything. Even the stuff that's quote unquote, maybe I shouldn't have said yes to, I'm still glad I said yes to them because now I know what not to do or I know I learned, I've learned from every experience. I don't regret it. I don't regret anything really. Taking that hustle that I had when I was 21, 20, you know, 20, well, actually I'm still hustling, but uh, you know that the 20, the hustle in your 20s is a little different than the hustle in your 30s. I'm glad I said yes to everything. I'm glad I had terrible gig experiences and didn't get paid for stuff and whatever, because it, it really kind of galvanized me as a person and, and, a, and a the kind of professional musician that I am now, because you how, if you don't have those experiences, how can you learn from them and grow? Like you have to have that. Everyone has to have that. But now, you know, I'm dialing it in to where I, I know kind of where I need to focus my stuff. You know, obviously the, over the last couple of years, the solo thing, the Mark Letiri thing has become much a bigger part of what I do now than it has ever been. And so that's kind of a shift that I'm learning how to focus my energy towards. But, you know, I think it really just comes down to like most of the gigs that I, I guess I should say I don't do anymore are ones that would take me away from my family for not really the right reasons. You know what I'm saying? Like I don't do for now. There might be a time when I do this again, but currently I, you know, I don't, if I have an opportunity to be home on a weekend, I'm not going to take a top 40 gig on a Friday night. And I'm thankful that I am currently in a position where I don't always have to do that. That might change tomorrow. You know what I mean? It's the music business. So that's, that's why I never slam any doors. <laughs> I always keep the door cracked because, you know, you never know when you're going to need a gig. But I, I've sort of narrowed it down to kind of like when I'm in town and I'm at home, 
if I'm working from my studio, I keep kind of like little office hours or whatever, but my kid can come in anytime she wants. In fact, I think they just got home, so they might run in here. I don't know. <laughs> um, and then, and then, you know, if I'm doing, if I have to go somewhere for a session, I'll do that or something. But if it's like, you know, like a, just something that I don't really, it's like, do I want to make this amount of money or is it worth maybe figuring out another way to make that money if it means I can stay home? You know what I'm saying? Like it's a ba- it's a balance and I don't I don't want to come off saying like, "Well, I don't have to take these silly gigs anymore." But my career is just in a different place. You know, it's it, and and I think a lot of it is because I do spend a lot of time on the road doing my own stuff or Snarky Puppy or freelancing with Erica Badu or whoever it is. You know, I chose to do that because in a lot of cases financially, well not really my solo stuff, but you know, the other stuff <laughs> can can be good for me and which which enables me to then be home and be a dad, you know, it it would be selfish of me to just keep taking everything and then go on the road. And I mean, unless, unless we really needed to do it, you know what I'm saying? And that's, that's, what's weird about this business is like I said, stuff could change tomorrow. I might need to call and take that cover band gig tomorrow, you know? And I, and you know what, man, I, I still do. Sometimes I do. Sometimes you got, you know, you got to pay the bills. And if you're not on the road and you're not making money doing what you normally do, you got to take the gig. And so that's why I said I never slam any doors, you know, so we're all trying to figure this out. You know, it's pragmatic. and I get it. On another topic, I um, if I could snap my fingers and and play the way you do. Right. I think I might feel bulletproof walking onto any stage <laughs> playing any anything with anyone. Right. Better, that, this is me like projecting. Okay. Right. What kind of gig would make you nervous in terms of audience, who you're oh, playing dude. with stylistically? That's every night with Snarky Puppy, man. I go on stage feeling like I'm the worst guitar player in the world. Oh, come on. <laughs> no, for, I mean, really. I mean, you know, it's a that's a high-pressure environment. You know, the tunes are hard. There's very specific things that I got to do that sometimes I screw up. <laughs> you know, yeah, definitely that situation. I mean, I'm sure I'd probably crap the bed if Steely Dan called or something like that. But um, I think what I've learned, you know, and I've and I've sat in and jammed with with a lot of my heroes at this point, guys who are just light years, you know, beyond me technically. And I, and I always think now that I'm sort of kind of comfortable with my sound, that if I just do my thing, it's just going to make and they do their thing. It's just going to make the musical experience better for everybody. Um, you know, I don't really look at, I don't really look at it as competition or anything like that, but I mean, they're definitely, I, you know, if I had to get some really crazy sight reading gig, like at the Oscars or something, I'd probably fold and screw it all up. (laughs) You know, when he was still alive, uh, getting a call from Prince might've done it. Yeah. I thought, well, I would have, yes, I would have done that gig in a second. I think I've, you know, probably. It's 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 interesting because I you know I have some friends who've played with him and it's very much like you know if you were working with him whatever he needed at whatever hour of the day and whatever part of the world you had to go do it. I heard that is a group of fantasma that uh, that would hop on a plane if he called at two a.m. Yeah, I think like all, everyone sort of had to do that in some you know like it's like oh Prince needs to go to wherever London tomorrow get on a plane. And, and guys would have other gigs and, you know, you just have to sort of. So the idea of maybe kind of like putting your life on hold, I, I don't know. I'd probably still do it just to do it for a while. And then once it got nuts, maybe I would stop. But, you know, I had a couple of friends who played in his horn section and then, uh, you know, some other friends who were doing other things with him. And 
you know, they would go up to Minneapolis and rehearse for two weeks and Prince would never show up or whatever. You know, it was just crazy, just stuff like that. But it's Prince. So, what? yeah, heck yeah, I'd do it. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to Snarky Puppy, you've been with the band since 2008, is it? Yeah. Um, over 10 years. Just about, yeah. How would you say your, your role within the band has changed over that 10, 11 year period? I don't know if it really has, I guess, in a sense. I, I, I mean, I... I'm there to contribute what what I do and what they need me to do. And that and that's kind of the the thing, you know, every now and then I'll maybe step out and try and write something for the band. But that's always been kind of a struggle for me to figure out how to properly do that. <laughs> but then, you know, I think I'm kind of the same type of band member that I was at the, at the very beginning when they when they started needing me to sub. Maybe I play louder now or not as loud. I, I don't think I play as I think I probably played louder back then. When playing live, when I've seen you play live, you and the other guitarists uh, mesh very well. It feels very organic. Yeah, sure. Did that just come naturally? Is it a matter of personalities you get along you, or, or does it take a lot of planning to figure out who does what? Um, it, it happened pretty naturally just because we all have very different sounds and the music kind of requires a little bit of all those things from each guy's kind of individual skill set. So at first, yeah, I don't, it, it really wasn't that hard. I mean, sometimes we'll powwow and negotiate about parts, like especially when we're recording, just to make sure the sound, you know, the songs are sounding right. But I just, you know, because early on, I would do a lot of gigs with Bob Lanzetti. That was, you know, kind of the two guitar thing. And, and we would immediately just start playing two different but complementary things. Just like it was, you know, and that's because we have different sounds, but we also kind of respect where each other are coming from on the guitar. And the same goes with, you know, Chris McQueen and myself, too. It's the same thing. But I think what it comes down to is just kind of like mutual respect. One person can't like really steamroll the whole thing. Otherwise, it's not going to work. Like it's that's not what the band's about. Everyone knows that everyone else in the band is a badass. And so it's like, well, <laughs> we're going to have to, you know, <laughs> there can't be room for big egos here because everyone can outplay the other guy at some point at something, you know right. what I'm saying? So, right. so it, it's kind of like being on an all-star basketball or football team or, you know, it's like the pro bowl, maybe. I don't know. I'm so, I'm making it sound like we're so good or something like that, but no, no, no. I hear but, you. Uh, I hear you. It, it, it makes sense. I'd like to try something new. I haven't done this before, uh, but I'd like to try something before wrapping up. And it's a, a speed round of seven questions. Okay. Uh, you ready? Yes. What kind of music might I be surprised to learn you enjoy playing or listening to? Oh, um, probably uh, probably either like thrash metal or like Hawaiian slack key guitar. <laughs> if you were kicked out of Fort Worth, in which city do you think you'd want to live? Well, oh, that's tough. I guess if I could afford it, I'd move back to the Bay Area. But uh, I think if I got kicked out of Fort Worth, I'd probably just move in with my parents because they live 40 minutes south of me. <laughs> <laughs> if you couldn't be a musician, what do you think you'd be doing for a living? Oh, man. Sometimes I think about just doing something totally different, like being a park ranger. You know, just like it's where I can work. Some, I think I would like to work outside in some capacity. I like being outside. Maybe like some kind of travel researcher guy that goes to the forest or something. A hotel critic. Yeah, or a food critic. That'd be cool, too. Can you name a drummer with whom you have not played that you would love to play with? Uh, Vinny Colaiuta. I think that would be really fun to play with him. 
Can you name a bassist with whom you haven't played that you would love to play with? Pino Palladino. Good choice. <laughs> Which member of Snarky Puppy makes your jaw drop most often you can pass? Oh, gosh. All, I, can't, I can't pick a guy. I really can't. Seriously, <laughs> man. I mean, everyone has such a sound. I'm really thankful I get to get my ass kicked on stage by those guys every night. And last question, uh, where do you find better Tex-Mex food, California or Texas? Are you kidding me? Well, okay, wait a minute. Hold on a second. Tex-Mex, Texas. Now, there is a big... Or I, I should rephrase that. You're right. Okay. Mexican-influenced cuisine. Okay. I, I like Texas because I like Tex-Mex. I also like the way Texas does tacos. However, Los Angeles does incredible tacos. If you want the best burrito, you have to go to San Francisco in the Mission, Dis really? in the Mission District. Yeah, because that's where the burrito was kind of sort of half invented. So I've heard. You know, you're connecting the dots. When I first moved to Austin, there was a p place called, I don't know if you, it's no longer around, but it was on 6th Street. It was called Bohemian Rap City. Okay. And they had a, the Uncle Strogan. It was the best burrito. It was just out of this world. And I remember that they had moved here from the Bay Area. There you go. So like in Texas, in Fort Worth or Austin or something, if you want just a nice plate of chili relleno and stewed pork and all these things, Texas is great for that. But yeah, if you want some great street tacos, L.A. is really good for that. But there's also great places here in Fort Worth. If you want the best burrito, you go to Vallarta in, on the, in the Mission in San Francisco and ask for them to do it. I think they call it wet style or whatever, where they pour all the peppers and sauces on top. You eat it with a fork. It's bigger than your head. But it'll, change your, it'll change your life. Mark, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with Absolutely. me. And uh, I look forward to watching you perform solo with Snarky Puppy with someone sometime, somewhere in the near future. Right on, man. Thanks, Marco. I appreciate it.